Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Smoke was billowing out of the lavish townhouse at 21 Rue Le Sur. The chimney was being fed from the basement, where Dr. Marcel Petiu was hard at work, oblivious to the befallment spewing into the Paris air. In the basement, the only light came from the roaring flame of the furnace. It flickered as the doctor heaved armfuls of detritus into the inferno. Business had been booming, and Marcel had enough money to last his family for generations. But there was still work to be done. Beside him lay a small mountain of body parts, men, women, children, their lifeless forms, the horrifying fruits of his labor. The corpses were in varying states of decay. Some had died recently. Others were little more than skeleton. Marcel grit his teeth at the stench coming from the bodies. It was grim work, heaving them into the furnace, but he needed to make sure no one ever discovered his secret. The fire, so willing to devour, would never tell anyone. Of that, he was sure. But unbeknownst to him, the flames had already betrayed him. While the bodies of his victims burned away, smoke traveled up the chimney and darkened the sky above the townhouse. It was a shadow of death that could be seen for miles around. I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're concluding our two-part series on Marcel Petiu, the werewolf of Paris. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. In our last episode, we looked at Marcel Petiu's early life and explored his constant need to enrich himself at the expense of others. When Paris fell under control of the Nazis, Dr. Petiu found a new way to get rich by murdering desperate people. Today, we're taking a closer look at the Flytox scam that claimed the lives of dozens from across Paris. We'll also learn about Petiu's eventful time on the run and what awaited him when he was at last brought to justice. We'll explore the horrifying crimes of Dr. Marcel Petiu right after this. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. 
even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1942, Paris was a terrifying place to live. The city had fallen into the hands of Nazi occupiers who began targeting the communities Hitler's regime deemed undesirable, namely Jews, the Romani, and the queer community. Criminals, including sex workers and pimps, were also targeted for elimination. Understandably, many people within these groups feared for their lives and sought to escape Europe as quickly as they could. This meant that Marcel Petiu had an endless stream of willing customers waiting to pay 25,000 francs to be transported to South America. Petiu assumed the alias Dr. Eugene and sought out associates who could help him spread the word about his covert escape route. Once a new customer showed up at the doctor's townhouse, they were led into his basement. There, he likely told them that they needed a vaccination before they could travel. But the vaccine was poison, probably cyanide, that killed Petiu's victims quickly. His first victim was a wealthy Jewish neighbor. Following that initial murder, anyone who entered Petiu's townhouse on Rue Le Sur wasn't seen alive again. This worked out perfectly for Petiu, as it suggested that his methods for helping people escape really worked. If people knew their loved ones had gone to fly talks and then didn't hear from them again, they only assumed they had made it out safely. In reality, their still warm bodies were stripped of valuables, their luggage stolen, and their cash payments pocketed. But Petiu's accomplices had no idea that they were sending people to their death. The doctor had long boasted of connections to the French resistance, which gave his scheme a sense of authenticity. Though his connection to the resistance was fabricated, it's true that Petiu did help his fellow citizens in other ways. In response to Germany's forced conscription of French citizens to help with the war effort, Petiu wrote phony medical reports for patients. The reports could then be turned in to avoid labor. 
But Petiu exaggerated his claims far beyond writing doctor's notes. He claimed he was instrumental in developing secret weapons and installing booby traps that had been used to assassinate Nazis and collaborators across France. Not only did his fake story help pull in willing accomplices and prospective customers, it inflated his already swollen ego. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Though not all of Petiu's claims can be proven false, it seems he often exaggerated to the point of the fantastic. His compulsive patterns and the sheer magnitude of his lies suggest that he lived with narcissistic personality disorder. According to the American Psychiatric Association, people with NPD can display a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, a constant need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. We can see each of these clearly in Petiu's repeated claims of belonging to the resistance. He wanted to be seen as a hero, sought esteem from his community, and loved boasting about his actions. He also cared little for the pain he caused along the way. All that mattered to him was keeping himself and his family living in blissful luxury. And to do that, he needed willing assistance. Petiu's assembled crew of associates were kept in the dark about the truth of fly talks. As far as they knew, they were doing a genuine good deed for fellow Parisians and making a little money for their efforts. In exchange for a cut of the fees, they would surreptitiously direct people Petiu's way. The doctor had cleverly assembled a group of people whose networks extended into various communities across the city, maximizing the reach of his scheme. Raoul Fouillet was a barber who would whisper tales of the resistance to clients while working on their hair. For those desperate enough to seek an escape, he would tell them of Dr. Eugene and fly talks. Fouillet's barbershop served as a central checkpoint for the group. It was from there that victims would be picked up and led to Marcel's estate. One of the other men unknowingly supplying these victims was Edmond Pintad, a former cabaret singer. When Nazis shut down the Paris cabaret scene, Pintad needed a new source of income. With few options open to him, he took up work with fly talks to stay afloat. Himself a victim of the occupying forces' new laws, he was content to support himself by helping others. Also roped into the scheme was an acquaintance Petiu had known since childhood. Like everyone else in the doctor's life, René Gustave Nezande was enthralled by Petiu's boasts and intelligence. He believed that Marcel was untouchable. In his eyes, there was no chance that they would ever be caught by the Carlang, the French Gestapo. One of the later members to join Fly Talks was a woman named Ariane Kahan. Ariane was a Jewish-Romanian immigrant who dyed her hair champagne blonde in an effort to hide her background. She also refused to wear the Star of David patch forced onto Jews by the Nazis. It wasn't in her best interests and didn't match her style. As a Jewish woman, Kahan specialized in recruiting other Jews trying to escape Nazi persecution in France. In fact, everyone had their role to play in a well-oiled machine. The marketing, such as it was, was divided between Petiu's accomplices, who spread out through the city to seek out the desperate. And they didn't have to look hard. In the summer of 1942, when fly talks had been running for around six months, Paul Leon Braunberger sought out Dr. Eugene. 
Braunberger was an aging Jewish doctor, anxious to facilitate an escape for himself and his wife. Unfortunately, his faith in fly talks was misplaced. The last time he was seen alive was on the Paris subway. It's likely he was on his way to Petiu's Rue Le Sur townhouse to make arrangements. When he didn't come home, Braunberger's wife was left to wonder for years what had happened to him. Sometimes, if Petiu knew his victims' families were likely to make a fuss, he forged letters filled with vague details about their escape. Not only was this an attempt to smooth over any troublesome bumps in the road, it also helped attract new paying customers. But unlike Braunberger, not all of Petiu's victims left loved ones behind to wonder where they were. Sometimes entire families disappeared after seeking help from fly talks. The Knellers were a family of three German Jews who vanished after entering Petiu's house. Likewise, the Wolf family of three and six of their friends made their way to the Pichu estate, never to be seen again. Large groups like this must have been a huge boon to Petiu, who was able to collect multiple fees at once. Then again, there were downsides to the growing success of his hustle, more bodies. At first, Petiu dismembered the bodies of his victims and, under cover of darkness, dumped the parts into the Seine. But it was soon apparent that this method attracted too much attention. Between 1942 and 1943, at least nine heads, four thighs, and several other assorted limbs were fished out of the river. With this initial method of disposal proving unsustainable, Petiu came up with a new plan. He dug pits throughout his property and had his brother, Maurice, deliver some quicklime. As 1942 gave way to 1943, Flytox was operating at full speed, and the scheme was raking in tens of thousands of francs for Petiu. At this stage, his associates had little actual work to do. Word was spreading all on its own. Unfortunately for Petiu, his underground marketing and boastful claims were working a little too well. Coming up, whispers about fly talks reach the French Gestapo. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. By 1943, 46-year-old Marcel Petiu had been successfully running his murderous fly talk scheme for a year. 
With his largely clueless associates continuously feeding him victims, he took 25,000 francs for every murder he carried out. He also pocketed his victims' valuables, brought with them in anticipation of their journey to a new life beyond the Nazis' clutches. But Petiu's success was a double-edged sword. The more people who heard about him spiriting people out of Paris, the more he was able to bring in. But using the resistance as a ruse to disseminate their marketing made it more likely that the Gestapo would find out about fly talks. Before long, word of the new resistance operation made its way to Officer Robert Yodkum of the Karlang's Jewish Affairs Department. The 59-year-old German thug was responsible for rooting out Jews in hiding and then sending them to concentration camps. News of a secret network helping Jews and other perceived enemies of the state escape from Paris would have alarmed Yodkum. Undermining Nazi authority in this way was unacceptable and undermined their occupation of France. He knew he had to put a stop to it. But Yodkum had no idea that Fly Talks was a scam that was responsible for the deaths of dozens of Jews. If he had realized, he might not have been in such a hurry to dismantle the operation. Yadkum and his colleagues theorized that Flytox was creating fake Spanish passports. Their clients, criminals and other undesirables, were then escaping France via Spain before heading to Argentina. When he was put in charge of the investigation, Yadkum's first plan was to gather more information through the use of an undercover informant. Rather than have a Gestapo officer pose as a hopeful immigrant, he turned to a Jewish prisoner named Ivan Dreyfus. Dreyfus's wife was told that her husband would be released in exchange for helping expose the Flytox scheme. And she had to give the Gestapo 100 francs as well. Even though her husband was a committed resistance fighter, Mrs. Dreyfus agreed to the terms. In May of 1943, 58-year-old Dreyfus was released from prison, given 25,000 francs, and sent to find Flytox under the guise of seeking an escape from France. Once he had made contact, he was to report back to Yodkum with names, locations, and any other information he could gleam. But after he went to meet with Flytox representatives, Ivan Dreyfus was never heard from again. A frustrated Yodkum assumed his prisoner had escaped through Flytox or had been unmasked as a mole and executed by the resistance. Whatever the reason, he was more determined to infiltrate the network. His next attempt proved more successful. Petty thief and newly released prisoner Charles Barada successfully made contact with Flytox members and took careful notes about his interactions with them. Arrangements were made for Barada to use the Flytox escape route to Spain, and traced banknotes were handed over as payment. On Friday, May 21st, Barada showed up to Raoul Fouillet's barbershop, as instructed by Flytox, he had brought a lightweight bag and all the money he possessed. But before he could be taken to the mysterious Dr. Eugene, Gestapo agents arrived to arrest the Flytox conspirators. Fouillet and Edmond Pintade were both taken into custody, and it didn't take long for the men to give up the real name of Dr. Eugene, Marcel Petiu. When Petiu was arrested at his home at Rue de Coumartin, he confidently told his wife, Georgette, not to worry. It seemed the cocky doctor was sure he'd be home before long. Along with Fouillet and Pintade, Petiu was taken to Friend Prison, just south of Paris. 
and there he stayed for some eight months, subjected to frequent torture by the Gestapo. It's little wonder it took their interrogators so long to get any information from their prisoners. According to the Association for Psychological Science, torture is not a reliable way of extracting information from a person. The act not only serves to increase resistance to cooperation, it also reduces the likelihood that a subject will be able to recall details from memory. Crucially, the physically and psychologically harsh conditions of torture make it almost impossible to detect lies. Eager to bring down the resistance, the Carlang demanded information from Petiu and his associates about the movement. They wanted to know the names of resistance fighters Petiu worked with, or who were involved in fly talks. They also asked for a list of the people he had helped flee the country. But because none of the men actually had resistance connections, they weren't able to give their interrogators what they wanted. Petiu's associates did give up the names of their fellow Flytox members, but that was all. Meanwhile, Petiu had painted himself into a corner. He didn't give a single name for any of the people he'd helped escape, either because he couldn't remember them or he was afraid of admitting guilt. To confess to helping Jews and criminals escape Paris could mean a death sentence for Petiu. And telling the truth was hardly a viable option. So he stayed quiet. But the doctor couldn't keep all of his secrets for long. Gestapo agents investigated his medical practice and the houses he had bought with his ill-gotten wealth. Unfortunately, they missed the property on Rue Lassure. Had they found the townhouse, they would have discovered the truth about fly talks. As it was, they were unable to unearth anything that definitively tied Petiu to the crimes he was accused of. But they were only looking for a conspiracy to help people escape France, not a plot to murder those people and hide their bodies. It was a crucial oversight that caused the investigation to drag on. But in January 1944, after eight months in prison, Petiu and his associates were finally released. The war was draining the Carlang's resources, and they needed to focus their attention elsewhere. It was something of a lucky break for the men. After their release, Petiu, Fouillet, and Pintade went their separate ways. It seemed none of them was willing to risk their lives for fly talks. For now, his associates still had no knowledge of the truth behind the scheme. And without the cover of a fake resistance network, there was no way for Petiu to continue alone. He was at an impasse. In the meantime, 47-year-old Petiu knew the best thing he could do was make sure he kept a low profile. Perhaps, fearing the Gestapo were still watching him, he asked his younger brother Maurice to keep an eye at his townhouse at Rue Lassure. He couldn't risk having his house of murder discovered before he'd had a chance to get rid of the bodies. But while acting as caretaker, Maurice noticed a disturbing smell coming from the building's basement. Thinking it best to investigate, he made the fateful decision to check on the odor. What he found was unlike anything he'd ever seen. Stacks of corpses lay rotting in the pits his brother had dug into the earth. The bodies were covered with a quicklime Maurice himself had supplied to Petiu. Disturbed and unsure who to turn to, Maurice confided in former Flytox colleague René Nezonde that bodies were being stored at his brother's estate. He described them as black as the Black Plague. The news shocked Nezonde, who shared it with his girlfriend. She, in turn, told another friend about the piles of dead bodies in the home of the popular doctor. 
Eventually, Maurice felt compelled to tell Petiu's wife, Georgette. According to reports, the 40-year-old woman fainted several times as her brother-in-law told her about the corpses. She was aware her husband had been somehow involved in a scheme to help people escape. She also knew he had a criminal history of embezzlement and fraud. But she could not believe he had anything to do with the deaths of dozens of people. Despite knowing her husband's fondness for breaking the law, Georgette Petiu was exhibiting classic signs of denial. This defense mechanism acts to protect a person's psyche from emotional conflict or anxiety by ignoring or excluding from conscious awareness unpleasant thoughts or events. According to the Mayo Clinic, denial can be a good thing at first. It allows time for the mind to adjust to the pain or stress of new information. But in the end, ignoring the reality of her husband's crimes wasn't going to do much to help Georgette. While she tried to remain willfully ignorant to reality, her husband set out to destroy the evidence once and for all. He left behind his wife and son while he went to stay in the murderous townhouse on Rue Le Sur. When he arrived at the site of his long killing spree, he lit the basement furnace, making the fire as hot as he could manage. Into the hungry flames, he began feeding any evidence of fly talks and the people he had murdered. He spent hours on end pushing luggage, clothes, and bodies into the fire. Ironically, it was this attempt to conceal his crimes that led authorities right to him. Unbeknownst to Petiu, his days-long fire, fed by rotting corpses, had resulted in a plume of black smoke that poured from the chimney. A dark haze smelling of death settled over the townhouse, announcing to the city that something was not right. To the neighbors, Petiu's townhouse had always been vacant. He'd never lived there and had only brought his victims under cover of darkness. So the sudden evidence of a fire within the building had people worried. No one wanted a fire to threaten the rest of the buildings on the street. They knocked on the door in case someone had moved in secretly. But when their knocks and calls went unanswered, they summoned the police and fire departments. On March 11, 1944, officials arrived at the townhouse and broke through a ground floor window that led directly into the basement. The smell in the basement was unspeakable. Police and firefighters covered their faces against the stench and steeled themselves against the horror into which they had stumbled. In the basement furnace, flesh melted from the bone of an arm, turning it to charcoal. Authorities found some 23 rotting bodies scattered around the townhouse. Mostly in pieces, the corpses had been dismembered to make them easier to cram into the furnace. And they discovered more evidence of murders numbering in the dozens. A random assortment of belongings were haphazardly stored about the place, mostly in the numerous suitcases that had been left behind. And then, in the middle of their investigation, Dr. Marcel Petiu walked in the door. When questioned about the horrific scene, Petiu played it cool. He told authorities that the bodies they saw were in fact those of France's enemies, conspirators, traitors, and Nazis. His fly talks network, he claimed, had been aiding in the war effort. It was a well-timed lie that gave the police pause. French forces were regaining power, and revolts against the Nazi occupiers were becoming more common. If Petiu's claims were true, he was a patriot, a hero. They needed time to investigate. 
In the meantime, Petiu was released. Knowing it was only a matter of time before the truth was uncovered, he decided to make his getaway while he still could. Coming up, Marcel Petiu runs for his life. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, the conclusion of our story. In March of 1944, 47-year-old Marcel Petiu had been caught trying to burn the bodies of his dozens of victims inside the basement of his Paris townhouse. Thinking quickly, he told the police that the murdered individuals were actually enemies of France and that he had been doing his patriotic duty by taking them out. While these claims were investigated, the killer doctor went on the run. It didn't take long for police to realize they'd been duped by Petiu. They quickly discovered that the bodies in his house were not Nazis and collaborators. They were refugees, local criminals, and even enemies of the popular doctor. Among the belongings and corpses were the bodies of Jean-Marc Van Beaver and Mart Kate. Both had been set to testify against Petiu in his narcotics trial the previous year, but had disappeared. As the sheer size and gravity of the bizarre case emerged, Paris's police commissioner, Georges-Victor Massou, took charge. When Massou's investigators questioned the neighbors of Petiu's murder house, they were all incredulous that the doctor could be capable of such horrors. They vouched for his abilities as a doctor and for his outstanding character. Even as the community rallied to defend Petiu, his wife, 41-year-old Georgette, decided to follow his lead. With a warrant out for her husband's arrest, she fled Paris and made for Petiu's hometown of Auxerre. Police caught up with her just a few days later. When she was arrested, she reportedly claimed, Marcel is the most kind, loving husband, father, and doctor. It seemed she was still in denial about her husband's true nature. She refused to acknowledge what he had done. Back in France, Petiu continued to evade police by taking advantage of a network of former patients and friends. He was somehow able to convince everyone he met that he was in desperate need of their help. He insisted he was a resistance fighter. The bodies in his house were all Nazis. He was helping France. Psychologist Maria Konnikova describes the typical victims of con artists as people who are also a victim of circumstance. People who are going through financial hardship, grieving the death of loved ones, or those going through emotional life transitions. This perfectly describes the people Petiu relied on for help. The effects of World War II had reverberated around the globe, but were particularly felt in occupied France. Having been on edge for years, it was all too easy for Batu's acquaintances to be fooled by the charismatic con man. Far from covering up the truth of his situation, Petiu continued to spout lies and boastful propaganda to those sheltering him. After moving from one house to another, one friend to the next, Petiu found a more permanent residence with a former patient, Georges Redoute. 
He stayed with Radut for months, only leaving the house at night and in disguise or heavily clothed. He even grew a beard to better conceal his identity, lest he meet anyone he knew. Around him, Germany's grip on France was slipping, and Paris itself was descending into chaos. The city's police went on strike in August of 1944, clashing with the Nazi occupiers. The turning tide of the war gave rise to a new French resistance group and army known as the French Forces of the Interior, or FFI. Sensing a chance for a new start, or perhaps craving the valor of being a perceived hero, Marcel Petiu joined the FFI under a false name, Henri Valerie. After years of boasting about being a resistance fighter, Petiu finally was. He even climbed to the rank of captain. But unsurprisingly, he was far from an upstanding member of the team. During an FFI operation in Tissancourt in the north of France, men under Petiu's command were sent to weed out potential Nazi collaborators still operating in the city. There, in front of an assembled crowd of locals, the men brutally beat and murdered the town's elderly mayor. They then used grenades to blast open the murdered man's safe and loot millions of francs. As Captain Henri Valéry, Petiu had the offenders rounded up and arrested. But he ultimately released the men and likely pocketed a good deal of their stolen money. It seemed that even when in hiding, Petiu was unable to curb his desire for riches he had done nothing to earn. Likewise, his inflated and fragile ego remained intact, ripe for puncturing. It was some time after the Tissancourt incident, when Petiu was back in Paris, that his ego would finally get the best of him. The newspaper Résistance printed an article dealing with the outstanding warrant for Petiu's arrest. It also claimed that in March of 1943, he had donned a German uniform and executed French resistance heroes in the town of Avignon. The paper labeled the doctor as a Nazi collaborator. It was an insult Petiu refused to accept, even when in hiding. So he sent a letter to his lawyer decrying the article. Résistance was trying to smear his good name, he claimed, and something had to be done. For someone with narcissistic personality disorder, as Petiu likely suffered from, the public tarnishing of his reputation was unacceptable. In the 2011 study, You Probably Think This Paper's About You, Narcissists' Perceptions of Their Personality and Reputation, researchers found that narcissists are likely to understand that other people view them less favorably than they view themselves. Even still, that Parisians might consider him a Nazi collaborator was distasteful to Petiu, and his great pride was to be his undoing. The letter to his lawyer was intercepted by authorities. Because of the speed at which it had been sent after the publication of the article, they knew Petiu was still in Paris. The call went out for people to be on the lookout for the murderous doctor. Even the FFI was involved in the manhunt, which led to the bizarre circumstance of Petiu as Captain Henri being given orders to capture himself. And though he ignored that particular instruction, Petiu couldn't avoid capture forever. Wanted posters featuring his face had been plastered across the city, and on October 31, 1944, a commuter spotted him in a subway station. Police were summoned, and he was arrested at last. 
During questioning, Petu again tried to convince authorities that his victims were all Nazis, but it was no use. In the aftermath of the Nazis' fall, his claims of heroism fell on deaf ears. They'd finally uncovered the truth of his actions, and a date was set for his trial. In March of 1946, 49-year-old Marcel Petiu finally stood trial for his crimes. News of his murder-for-profit scheme spread throughout Europe, and the public eagerly awaited the fate of the man dubbed the Werewolf of Paris and Dr. Satan. At trial, Petiu's lawyer maintained the lie that his client was a patriotic resistance fighter who had murdered only enemies of the state. He suggested that collaborators in the newly reformed French government were setting him up for the murders of Jews, murders that had never happened. On the opposing side of the court, federal prosecutors were backed up by a dozen civil lawyers who had been hired by the families of Petiu's many victims. They had united against the man responsible for their pain and were determined he should be brought to justice. Of the bodies found in his townhouse, Petiu admitted to killing 19, but swore that all of them were Nazis and collaborators. Those 19 were just a small part of the 63 victims the doctor claimed to have killed as a resistance fighter during the war. In total, Petiu was found guilty of 27 murders, though authorities suspected he could have killed over 100. The three-judge panel decided that Petiu would pay for the murders with his life. The riches he had stolen from his victims were no good for this debt. On May 25, 1946, 48-year-old Marcel Petiu was executed by guillotine. Witnesses reported that he had an eerie smile as he laid his head on the block, and even when separated from his body, the evil smirk remained. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Jacob Davison, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 